0: This Government Matters podcast is sponsored by Hughes Network Systems. It's time to expect more from your network.
1: We are showing that planetary defense is a global endeavor, and it is very possible to save our planet.
2: Today on Government Matters, in September, NASA successfully changed the path of an asteroid for the first time ever, but the work isn't over yet. Then, TSA was created two decades ago in response to 9-11, but as threats to the country's transportation system become more sophisticated, the agency has to innovate to stay ahead of those threats. And the Technology Modernization Fund is meant to give agencies a way to improve their services to the public, secure their systems, and save money. We'll talk to the fund's executive director. Government Matters starts right now.
0: From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Mimi Gerges.
2: This is Government Matters, the show that delivers insights on federal government programs, people, and operations. I'm Mimi Gerges. On September 26, NASA and partners crashed a spacecraft into an asteroid with the goal of shifting its trajectory. It was all part of its Double Asteroid Redirection Test Mission, known as DART, and the first ever test of planetary defense. Lindley Johnson is planetary defense officer at NASA and program executive for its Planetary Defense Coordination Office, which funded the DART mission. Lindley, welcome back to the program.
1: Oh, thank you, You're glad to be here.
2: We had talked earlier when you first launched, so remind us of the dart mission and how it played out
1: well uh, the dart mission was to test the technology uh, to change the motion of an asteroid in space Uh, so uh, dart launched back in uh, november of 21 and it took us 10 months to get to this double asteroid system and we were to impact the moon of uh, didymos called Dimorphus and change its orbital period about Uh, And so on the evening of the 26th of September, uh, the DART spacecraft did what it was designed to do, uh, direct hit on Dimorphos. And uh, now our observations post-impact have confirmed uh, that we have changed uh, the orbit of Dimorphos. So how much has it changed? Well, the orbital period prior to the impact was almost 12 hours, 11 hours and 55 minutes. And we changed that period by 32 minutes, uh, so um, about uh, about a four percent change uh, in the uh, orbital period. So uh, we did prove that this uh, technology uh, could be used.
2: And and how significant is that change? Is it was it in line with expectations? Did it exceed expectations?
1: Well, there were a range of uh, what uh, we thought we could expect. Uh, uh, there are several variables in, involved. Uh, composition of the Asteroid itself is one of the big variables. We didn't know what that was, so we had a range of, uh, of compositions uh, that would uh, affect uh, how much the change was. Um, we sort of uh, expected somewhere between uh, several minutes to uh, several tens of minutes, uh, uh, 30, 40 minutes, uh, and uh, kind of the midpoint of our uh, estimates was around 10 minutes. Um, so, Uh, This uh, change was more than that midpoint, but well within the range of uh, what could have happened.
2: And I know you're still collecting data, but what have you learned so far from the initial data that you've gotten so far?
1: Uh, Well, uh, 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 some of the uh, images that have been collected uh, by uh, both ground and space telescopes uh, show us uh, the amount of ejecta uh, that was uh, blasted out uh, by this impact. Uh, and that was uh, probably more than uh, than we expected, which uh, uh, sort of explains why the orbital change was more. You know, part of what happens here is the impact blasts a bunch of material off the surface of the of the object, and that enhances uh, the momentum change uh, just from the impactor itself. Uh, so, uh, uh, seeing this uh, uh, ejecta both uh, uh, from ground-based uh, telescopes. Uh, We didn't know uh, uh, we'd see that much just from the ground, uh, but also from space-based telescopes, both the Hubble and James Webb telescope uh, uh, imaged uh, after the impact.
2: Why did NASA carry out this mission to begin with? What's the big picture here?
1: Well, the big picture is uh, uh, there is still a lot of uh, natural debris uh, from the formation of the solar system. Uh, Asteroids and comets that come into Earth's uh, uh, neighborhood uh, in the solar system. Uh, so uh, the Planetary Defense uh, Coordination Office uh, at NASA's responsibility is for uh, finding uh, any asteroid that uh, poses a, an impact hazard with the Earth and predicting out into the future when it, that hazard may uh, may occur. Uh, so uh, first of all, our highest priority is, is finding them and knowing what uh, what the danger may be but then what are we going to do about it Uh, what what uh, capability do we have what technology space technology that we now have can we apply uh, to protect the earth from uh, this type of natural disaster uh, ever happening again and so that's what DART was about is demonstrated and we do have the technology to change the motion uh, of a cosmic object in space.
2: Well, let's talk about what could happen. And and I know that obviously this particular asteroid didn't pose any threat to Earth, but if one did, what could happen? I mean, would it destroy the entire planet?
1: Uh, No. uh, uh, There are no planet killers uh, out there, uh, uh, and not even uh, any as big as the uh, asteroid comet that was uh, thought to cause the demise of the uh, dinosaurs, uh, there are those of that size out there, but we have now found uh, everything uh, that large and, and, and larger, so, so now we're talking about asteroids that are in the uh, uh, range of, uh, of a few hundred feet, uh, uh, a few hundred meters uh, in size. Now, an asteroid impact by, uh, say, uh, a, an asteroid the size of Dimorthos, 160 meters or so in size, about the size of a small football stadium, uh, if it were to occur in a metropolitan area, uh, it would be a disaster on a scale that we've never had to deal with. Uh, uh, the blast uh, radius uh, from uh, something that large uh, hitting us at 17,000 miles an hour uh, would cause uh, devastation across uh, a statewide area.
2: And what was the biggest challenge, Lindley, in, in this project overall?
1: Uh, well, uh, the, uh, uh, figuring out the, uh, uh, the orbit uh, of, uh, of the asteroids, uh, uh, Didymos, and particularly uh, Dimorphos about it, uh, uh, understanding that their position in space, and the position of the moonlit relative to the asteroid, and then navigating the spacecraft uh, to be at the right point at the right time uh, to to uh, uh, to hit Dimorphus. Uh, uh, you know, hitting a bullet with a bullet doesn't begin to <laughs> <laughs> explain the velocities that we're, we're that we're talking about here. So, um, first, you know, building a spacecraft uh, uh, specifically designed to do this uh, mission and then getting it there at the right time and in the right place. You
2: know, finally, I'm wondering if you're looking at any other ways of testing how to deflect asteroids.
1: Well, yes, we are. and uh, We have a list of different techniques uh, that might be uh, uh, practical to use uh, for this type of thing. Uh, in uh, principle, anything that will change the speed, uh, the orbital velocity uh, of the asteroid uh, changes its position uh, into the future uh, time so anything that you can do to either speed up or slow down uh, the asteroid uh, and you impart that to it uh, several uh, months to years in advance uh, then it will arrive at the point in space uh, where it could have impacted earth either early or late so that's the whole principle you just need to change the speed of it just a just a hair so any technique uh, that you can think of uh, to you know change a 2,000 metric ton <laughs> object in space uh, could be used. So we we have uh, ideas like a gravity tractor, uh, 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 ion beam uh, deflector, and uh, uh, and you know a whole list of, of techniques that that might be tested.
2: And I didn't get a chance to ask you how you felt when it hit, but <laughs> we'll do that for our next interview. Okay, Lindley, okay, thanks sure. so much for
1: the for the interview. Yeah, you're quite welcome. Thank you.
2: Next on Government Matters, to protect the nation's transportation systems from future threats, the TSA has an Innovation Doctrine. We'll find out what's in it. Stay with us. It's the first document of its kind in the federal government. TSA has just released its Innovation Doctrine, a framework on how the agency intends to outmatch evolving threats. Meg King is the Executive Director for Strategy, Policy Coordination, and Innovation at TSA. Meg, welcome to the program. Thank you. So the innovation doctrine states this, quote, for our organization to remain relevant with the speed of change and be prepared for future threats and challenges, innovation cannot be a hero-led activity. What does that mean? Well, that means
3: that we've always... embraced innovation since our founding. We're all innovators, disruptors, creators, and leaders. Because TSA was created after a crisis, we had to be innovative. Now we're ready to embed it in everything we do. And the innovation doctrine makes it a policy that anyone from our workforce to the public can read. And it's meant to empower anyone um, to be part of an enterprise level system for innovation. And there are four big goals it's that creating and and facilitating and allowing that system to grow is number 1 number 2 is using as you mentioned a framework to identify problems to test solutions through small bets by building a pipeline 3 is to rapidly implement innovative ideas that are viable so people can see that innovation is possible and that it doesn't need to take a long time and then four that tsa will grow a network of employees, but private industry, academia, and non-government organizations so that we can sustain innovation across the transportation
2: So a big component of of this um, doctrine is the innovation pipeline. What is that? So
3: it's uh, a way for us to uh, identify problems and to field them and test them. We've got five uh, names so that they're kind of uh, fun to remember. So it's source, curate, discover, incubate and transition. And so that means that we plan to look for those challenges and and then we need to look through and discover the the actual causes, the root causes of those challenges and how we can find new opportunities to address them in new ways. We need to then um, take them out and test them and then grow the capability. And then we hand it off because enterprise innovation is not meant to be its own innovation office, for example. It's meant to uh, establish it across the, uh, the agency.
2: You know, Meg, uh, you mentioned this before and the doctrine talks about an empowered workforce, but a common criticism of federal agencies is there's a disincentive to take risks. So if you fail, you get blamed. But if you don't try, you don't get blamed.
3: Well, that's part of why this doctrine matters. It's, it's, a, it's a roadmap and it's a guidebook, basically. Here's how we think we should do it. Here's what we've learned over two decades in, um, in the transportation security sector. And here's how we're gonna do it in a disciplined way so that we all know how to do it. And we all know that um, it is okay if something if a project doesn't work we need to test it again using a small bet but uh it's if we don't try
2: we will never innovate we will never succeed the document also talks about cultivating a highly effective innovation culture but culture is really hard to change so what's the plan to do that well
3: uh a couple of things one is we've identified a number of airports across the country aviation is obviously a significant uh part of the transportation sector that want to to innovate and so we created this kind of network called lift cells or local innovation for tsa and our enterprise innovation team just had a group of over 20 airports come together to identify problems large and small that they themselves can then fix so, so there are a couple of, of, of organizational structures that we're putting in place, that pipeline so that everyone knows that that's how the process works, that's how we identify challenges and we work through solving them. Then there are these organizational groups where people can come together and know that they can both get resources and support uh, as well as talk to each other and, and find about, out how lessons are learned and, and what works in some places and what might work better in others.
2: And Meg, can you give us an example of an innovative project that TSA is already working on?
3: Oh, there are many. Uh, one of my favorites is, can you imagine what it would be like if you uh, had even an estimate about how long it might take you to get through security at an airport so that you not, might either leave later or earlier? So we're working on how to identify what those average times might be in certain places, and some airports are very excited about the possibility of being able to predict uh, what your wait time might be so that we
2: can be more efficient and effective in our security at airports. And can you tell us about some of the biggest threats that, you're, that we're currently facing to the nation's transportation systems?
3: They are dynamic, and as the administrator has said, um, many times getting more complicated and complex so you have uh, a growing number of individuals who are uh, potentially uh, interested in carrying out violent acts harder to track in the u.s than the foreign threats that we traditionally track we also have new technologies that people are using and not necessarily in an an adversarial way but i'm thinking uncrewed aircraft Uh, or as commonly known drones, that uh, both are at risk of uh, coming into contact with aircraft, but also other uh, parts of the transportation sector. So you've got a range of new threats evolving
2: and new challenges every single day. All right. Well, Meg, I appreciate you being on the program. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Straight ahead, the Technology Modernization Fund has announced major investments in the government's cybersecurity and online services. We talked to the fund's executive director. That's coming up next. The federal government's Technology Modernization Fund has announced three new investments, bringing the fund to a portfolio of 32 investments totaling over half a billion dollars. Raylene Young is the Fund's Executive Director at the General Services Administration. Raylene, welcome to the program. Hi, thank you for having me. So what's your specific role as the Fund's Executive Director?
4: Yes, um, so as Executive Director, I oversee the Technology Modernization Fund's Program Management Office here at GSA. Um, What our staff does is really facilitate and support the entire Fund's um, end-to-end operations. So we do everything everything from working with agencies to help encourage them and understand how the TMF works in order uh, to support their proposals. We work very closely with the TMF board um, to kind of evaluate and examine these proposals through multiple stages before they're ultimately uh, selected for investment by the board. Um, Once investments are active, we spend a lot of time partnering with agencies and really working side by side to ensure that all these projects um, are as successful as possible and have the greatest impact on the American public.
2: Well, remind us how the uh, TMF works and, and the process for a project to get funding.
4: Yeah, absolutely. Um, It's a pretty straightforward process in a lot of ways. So to start, an agency can submit um, either a lightweight Expression of interest, or attend an office hours, or have kind of have a conversation with a member of of my team. But from there, they submit a formal application, which we call an initial project proposal, and it's a written document that lays out what they hope to achieve um, in their technology modernization project, um, how they're going to do it, uh, what you know cost savings or what impact um, to the public might be realized through this project, and that proposal gets evaluated and summarized um, and voted on by the TMF board. All of that then happens again in a second phase, which is far more detailed and goes much more into specifics around how the investment might be spent, what happens quarter by quarter, um, and that again gets voted on by the TMF board, at which point um, we notify the Hill, we prepare some communications, um, and the investment goes live.
2: And and Um, Raylene, how are these projects actually assessed in terms of whether or not they're actually improving the taxpayer experience or saving money?
4: It's a great question. Um, so we take what we call an iterative approach to, through uh, of, for investment management. So one, you know, huge principle of the TMF is rather than think of a technology investment project as something where you invest a lot of money up front and you wait a few years and, and try to see what happens at the end, we are thinking about things um, in a very kind of incremental and, and iterative way. That means that every month or quarter. Uh, someone from the TMF is checking in with the project team and asking questions and looking at results. So that means every quarter we can tell, you know, how is this trending? Uh, Is the project on time? Are we realizing cost savings? Are we improving the experience for users? And if anything is maybe not going the way we want it to, that gives us ample opportunity to help projects course correct um, and to provide agencies with more support
2: well let's talk about one of the the new projects and one is for the housing and urban development project how much money
4: is being set aside for that and how will it be used yeah so this is a as you mentioned one of our newest investments so it's a 14.8 million dollar investment that's going to allow hud to replace um, costly legacy systems and move them to the cloud and the idea is that they would integrate uh one of their um, kind of internal systems that is the, it's called the Federal Housing Administration Connection System that allows people to kind of log in and connect with different services. Um, they're going to integrate certain parts of that with new modern services around login, around login and authentication. Um, so this investment intends to improve the customer experience for users um, by creating, you know, more seamless. Uh, self-registration capabilities for um, end users, for organizations, and for application administrators um, for HUD. So that's basically intention. It, it, the, it may have, it, the idea is to improve the user experience for potentially over 95,000 external Federal Housing Administration users, um, and to kind of upgrade the IT um, posture with the new, with new federal identity management and ICAM requirements.
2: And uh, just very briefly, I know you provide expertise and support to agencies. How is that different from the support they get from contractors?
4: Ah, yeah. Um, so I think I would look at uh, a couple different reasons, a diff- couple different ways. So something that's very unique about the Technology Modernization Fund um, is, as you mentioned in the beginning, we have a portfolio of actually over six hundred million dollars now um, in in thirty-two investments and seventeen federal agencies. So that gives us, I think, a uniquely broad view of what's happening across the federal enterprise. So rather than just you know looking at an agency's one project we benefit from working with many different agencies, sometimes tackling similar problems at the same time. So we can kind of provide that, you know, supercharge of additional resources and knowledge that we benefit from, you know, learning from, you know, our members of our board. All right, Raylene, and that's all
0: the
2: time we've got. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. If you miss an episode of Government Matters, it's on our website, govmatters.tv. And tell us what you thought about today's program. You can reach us on Twitter at govmatterstv. Follow us to get the latest updates, reminders, and links to our latest interviews. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 10.30 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 10.30 on 7 News to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the federal government. Thanks for watching. I'm Mimi Gerges.
0: Stay tuned for an interview with our podcast sponsor, Hughes Network Systems.
2: I'm here with Tony Bardo, Assistant Vice President for Government Solutions at Hughes. Tony, welcome. Can you start by just telling me what Hughes does for the federal government?
5: What we do is provide connections. We connect the dots, meaning we use a number of various technologies to connect federal agencies, their locations, their people,